Welcome to the Grace Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., we gather together at the Malco Theater in Collierville, Tennessee, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by worshiping God through music, scripture, and a message for our lives. So if you're looking for a church home where you can feel loved and accepted as part of God's family, then come and join us at Grace Hill Church. You can visit our website at gracehill901.com for more information about our services and what we have planned for the upcoming weeks. We look forward to connecting with you. Now here's this week's message. So uh, we are wrapping up our series today called Becoming, and this has been a vision series. We've just been kind of journeying through the last several weeks, looking at our vision statement that we are becoming a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus and and all of what that entails. And uh, we are headed somewhere next after this. We're starting a sermon series next week called Think Differently is the name of the series. And what this is, is this is going to be a a field guide for us to finding unity in a divided world. The church uh, could be and should be a beacon for unity, uh, for togetherness. Uh, But sadly, as I know some of you, especially if you've been around church for a long time, uh, sadly, the church often can represent uh, division and strife and conflict, uh, and many times that grows and abounds. So we are going to take the next several months, and we're just going to sit in a posture of learning from the church at Philippi and the letter that Paul wrote to the church uh, that we call Philippians, and see what we might learn about unity and how to discover unity as we become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city uh, and the fame of Jesus. And today, I mentioned this earlier, but we are unpacking the the tail end of this statement. We're wrapping this up uh, for the fame of Jesus. And, And you may say, well, why is that phrase in our vision statement? I mean, we're a church. Isn't that assumed that the reasons why we would do what we do is for the fame and the name of Jesus? Well, there's uh, a lot of information and data that is coming out from uh, primarily an organization called Barna. They're a massive Christian research group uh, about where the last few years uh, in our culture here in America has shifted the religious paradigm and some of the numbers. And and I just want to read a little bit of this just to kind of set this in our minds for a minute. Uh, Practicing Christians are now a much smaller segment of the entire population. In 2000, 45% of all those sampled qualified as practicing Christians. That share has consistently declined over the last few years. Now just one in four Americans, that's 25%, is a practicing Christian. In essence, the share of practicing Christians has nearly dropped in half since 2000. Where did these practicing Christian goes? Barna goes on and writes this. Where did these practicing Christian goes? The data indicates that their shift was evenly split. Half of them fell away from consistent faith engagement, essentially become, becoming non-practicing Christians. Uh, the, the data there is in 2000, uh, in 2000, that was roughly 35%. Now that number has increased to 43%. While the other half moved into the non-Christian segment, that went from 20% in 2000 to now 30 in recent years. This shift also contributed to the growth of the atheistic, agnostic, and none section, which has nearly doubled in size during the same amount of time. In 2003, that number was surveyed at 11%. In the most recent data that Barna uh, has is in 2018, that number was 21%. 
We are in a time, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, where only 10% of young adults would identify with being what is called a resilient disciple. The fastest growing religious identification group in America is a group, I just mentioned them, called the nuns. They have no religious affiliation at all. I recently heard that as many as 10,000 churches are expected to close their doors in 2023. And over the last 40 years, national trust in clergy, in the vocation of pastors, has moved from nearly 70% to now merely 37%. So in case you didn't walk in knowing, uh, maybe hopefully now you recognize the fact that we've got a little bit of a problem on our hands when it comes to how Christians engage with the world and the fame of Jesus around us. And I am deeply alarmed, probably much like you, and convinced and convicted by the fact that something has to change. And and to be honest, if you spend much time on social media or engaging in especially uh, kind of Christian kind of worldview commentary uh, things, Uh, you know that there's many ideas floating around right now about what the greatest threats to the church in America are and why it's in decline and the steps we should take and what we should do about it. And let me say this, and this is just purely from my vantage point, me living on this earth for 42 years, been a follower of Jesus most of my life and coming in on, I think it's 20 years of pastoral vocation. The greatest danger in our churches today is not the deconstruction movement. It isn't the newest culture war rage, or it isn't the latest flavor of the month on the menu of fear mongering that so often seems to happen. And it isn't, it is not liberal or conservative drift. May I propose to you that one of the reasons we have landed in this spot that we find ourselves in right now in 2023 is that followers of Jesus are being quietly lulled to apathy by the busyness of life. Simple things like binge watching the latest uh, show of Netflix that they love, which again, we all have those. I'm not criticizing that. But having more zeal and passion to talk about the latest episode of The Crown or Stranger Things or whatever it may be than we do for Jesus. And the passionate pursuit of a convenient life that simply dulls and pulls our hearts slowly away from the passion we could or once had for Jesus. I'm I'm still feeling like any of you guys have this like four-week crud. I'm still just getting over this thing. And, and, and the way I would picture it is almost like this congestion that had moved into my chest about a week and a half ago. My, my lungs and my chest were so full of junk that did not belong, it made it hard to breathe. And for many followers of Jesus, we have congested our life with so much stuff that does not belong. It makes it hard to breathe in the goodness of God because there's just no room for it. You may have even found yourself in a spot where you feel like you no longer burn brightly for Jesus, but that we simply just exist. 
And there are people in our, in our communities with, that have no outside identification with the kingdom of God at all. In, in, a, in a simple way, it is just that our hearts have grown dull. John Calvin, the famous theologian, described the human condition this way. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. You think about Paul in Acts 17. He, he's on these missionary journeys, and he's going from city to city to city, and he walks into the, 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 the city of Athens, and he's struck by the, the magnitude of the idols, the, 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 the statues and the forms that are uh, placed there to the gods of the city, even to the point where he gets uh, concerned about the fact that just to not leave anybody out, there is one that has been placed there to the unknown God. And that can be what our hearts look like. They're, they're just idol factories. They're so congested with the things of life that we've just lost our passion, our zeal for God. The, the words that are written in Revelation to the church, uh, to the seven churches there, there's, there's one picture here in chapter 2, verse 4. It says this. These are the words of Jesus. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. I'm just curious. You don't have to raise your hand, but but is there anybody that kind of identifies with this? I mean, I do. I'm up here preaching to myself this morning, knowing that it is just as easy for me to get into this lull and this dullness and just to lose my zeal for the Lord. And last summer, you heard me kind of share the story a few weeks ago, but last summer as I was praying through uh, where we were going to go as a church, and I was wrestling over this, I was, I, was, I was praying over what many kind of social commentators in the church world right now are calling our, our cultural moment. You know, everything you read in Scripture has a cultural context to it. And so right now we have a cultural context. And how does the gospel, how does the kingdom of God respond to, just like it did then, the current cultural context? And so I was praying over this cultural moment, and I was so gripped by a singular verse. And I remember Bobby and Tina Kinney, they serve on our prayer team. You guys may not remember this, but I remember saying this to you guys after service one Sunday uh, when, I, when I was wrestling through this verse. And I, I remember sharing it, I think, on a Sunday morning just as a closing prayer time. But I told them, I said, I think this verse, will you pray with me? I think this verse will have a foothold on our vision for our future. And as you heard the story a few weeks ago, we begin to, as a staff and elders and different leaders in our church, we begin developing our vision for our church, that we are becoming a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. And so um, I want to read our teaching text today from the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 2, and here at Grace Hill, what we do, just as a, a, a sign of, of, of reverence for God's word, we stand. So I want to invite you to stand. It's one verse. You're going to stand long enough just to stretch your legs and sit right back down. But, but this is, uh, this is uh, the word in Habakkuk chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, and in our time, make them known. And in wrath, remember mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. 
So I'm going to spend a little bit of time and unpack this verse for us today. And then what I want to do is I want to take this verse and I want to apply it into our context about how we can do our part to hold the tension of being focused on the fame of Jesus in a culture and in a community and a city and a world that just churns out idol factories of the heart. The name uh, Habakkuk is derived from the, pre, pre, uh, the, the Hebrew verb embrace. And his name, I love this, his name probably means he who embraces or clings. And it's an appropriate name for this prophet who held a firm faith through grappling through a very, very difficult season with God's people. Scholars don't know much about Habakkuk, but what they believe is that he wrote this book. He, re he recorded these prayers uh, through a 25-year period of time between 612 B.C. and 587 B.C. And here's what I want you to know about Habakkuk. Habakkuk was not very different, and his cultural moment was not very different than ours because he saw God's people slip into, and nation slip into a sense of apathy and sin. And yet he prayed that he would see revival. And the first two chapters of Habakkuk, if you wanted to go back and read it, the first two chapters of Habakkuk are um, the prophet's questions, and it's a Q&A time with God. And now that God has answered Habakkuk, he turns and brings a prayer as he closes out this book. And so you could label this prayer, this section, and especially this verse, you could label this prayer a desperate prayer for the worship of God and a desperate prayer for God's revival, starting with and in Habakkuk. And he begins this prayer section with this phrase, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I have heard of your fame. The NIV here translates, that's what I'm reading from today, translate the, translates the phrase, heard of your fame. And if you look up that word in the Hebrew, it means shama, shama. It's a military word. Many translations will translate this phrase out as I've heard of your report. It's a military term often used in the Old Testament that means report. We get a picture of that in Joshua 22, 33. They were glad to hear the report and praise God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Rebunites and the Gadites lived. The prophet had heard through stories, revelation, and the word, the fame of the Lord. And, and so I asked the question, what, what might this fame, this report, if, if you were handed a folder if Habakkuk was handed a folder and it said, this is the report of the fame of the Lord, what might it entail? Well, the prophet was no doubt familiar with the Exodus story of how God had led the people out of slavery and captivity in Egypt and then through the wilderness into the promised land. He was certainly familiar with the story, I'm sure, of how a young shepherd boy had been chosen to be the next king and how God used him to rescue Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Habakkuk was almost certainly aware of the glorious deeds of God. He says that he was in awe of them. He was awestruck with the glorious deeds of God. 
The prophet Isaiah has a, a similar heartbeat. He says this in Isaiah 26, 8. He says, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. So here's what I want to, I want to pose the question back to you. If, if you were to stand up here with a report in your, a, a folder in your hand, a report of the Lord in your life, and you were to say, this is the report of the fame of the Lord that I've heard. I'm standing in awe of the deeds of my Lord. What would that report say? Would the report of the amazing fame and the deeds of God in your life be that he saved your heart? He called you to follow Jesus? Would it be a moment of healing in your life, physical, mental healing in your life? Maybe it would be the report of deliverance, that he brought you out of a place where you needed to be deliverance from addiction or freed from some uh, baggage or burden or bond. Maybe you would, re would read the report of the fame of the Lord in your life and the deeds he has done, that you are awestruck by the deeds that he has done in your life because your marriage was reconciled at one point when it was so broken. Maybe there was a moment where you had financial provision in your life that you could only credit to the Lord for providing. What would it be? What Habakkuk is getting at here is at, at his heart, he's getting at worship. When, when you think about the fame and the deeds of the Lord, Habakkuk is getting to the heart of worship in his life and how worship has been so clouded in God's people's lives and communities. Here's maybe the clearest definition that I could give for worship in 2023. It's this. Worship is when the worship leader sings my favorite songs at just the right volume with just the right crescendo on just the right Sunday when I wanted to hear that song. Not too long, not too short, with just the right amount of light in the room where I can see if others are lifting their hands, but, not, uh, but at the same time it needs to be dark enough so I can feel comfortable to praise God in my own way. Not standing too long, but also not sitting either because I think we should stand when we worship. But again, not too long and None of the musicians can miss notes or fumble words because then I get distracted, but I don't want them to sound too good because then I get distracted by it just being a performance. Oh, and if they will mix in one of those old hymns, I love that, but I'd rather them not mess up a new core. Uh, I'd rather them not mess with a new course at the end of a hymn, unless it's that Jesus paid it all hymn. I really like that one. And don't forget about the temperature of the room. I can't worship when it's too hot, but it really can't be too cold either. Y'all, I'm just kidding, by the way. Um, yeah, this is the clearest definition of worship for our lives in 2023 that I can think of. Worship is praising God for who he is and what he has done, period. There's an old song that gripped my generation. I'm 42 and this song was probably... 
20 plus years old, but there's a, there's a song that gripped my generation. And, and when the song first came out, none of us knew the story behind it. But a few years later, we, we found out the story. And the song was called The Heart of Worship. Many of you kind of Gen Xers and maybe even older millennials, you remember this song. And, and the song would say, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you desire. You've searched much deeper within through the way things have been. And then the chorus says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And Matt Redman wrote what I think is the most powerful line, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Lord. And then he says this. We don't do this often enough in worship songs or in church in general. We don't confess and repent. He says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I have made it. Lindy, go back to that previous slide there that had all that phony definition of worship. I think this is what Matt Redman had in mind. When he wrote, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, because this is, this is what we make worship out to be so many times. He says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And, and we, when we were singing that song, you know, man, at youth camp in the summertime, and I'm learning how to play guitar, and, and my fingers are bleeding because I don't have calluses, and, and, and I'm just trying to, you know, just muster up and, and, and lead and all the different things 20 years ago. None of us knew the origins of the song. The origins of the song were the pastor at my Redmond's church, and Redmond got so frustrated with what they looked out and saw. And they said, what would happen if we did away with the lights, if we did away with all the music, if we did away with the, with the instruments, if we did away with the lyrics, if we did, would people even worship anymore? So they stripped it all away. And out of that, that song that I believe formed and changed a generation was birthed. It's all about you Jesus. Habakkuk had a grip on this. It gripped his life. He said, I've heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. He had a heart that was cultivated for worship. And I just, I want to put a little asterisk on this real quick. Please do not interpret anything that I'm saying right now as a knock on what we do on Sunday morning. This all matters, and it's important, and we want our people. I've said this for years. Church is the only place in, in, the, in the world almost where we would want to stifle someone's creativity. Can you imagine that? Six, seven hundred years ago, the church was known as the epicenter for creativity. People travel halfway around the world to look, to stare up at the ceilings of churches because there were artists that were using their creativity for the glory of God. And the question I've asked for years is, who's our artists and painters now? Well, they're videographers, they're graphic designers, they're lighting designers, they're musicians, they're creatives in our church, and we want to release them and utilize them to use their gifts for the glory of God. But never, and this is the tension we walk in a place like this, never at the detriment or distraction for the fame and the deeds of Jesus, but only to magnify and lift those up. 
You see, worship begins with a recognition of the fame of the Lord in your life and in our world. But then he takes it further. He doesn't just end there. He makes the statement, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Lord, right now, repeat them and make your fame and your deeds known. As we look out at what feels like a wasteland, Lord, repeat them in our day and make them known. He's saying, Lord, continue your story. And this is a desperate prayer because notice who he's praying and aiming this towards and, and asking for, the, for, some, for who's doing this. He's saying, Lord, you got to do this. He isn't asking for how to make the Lord do this. He's not asking for a plan or a strategy, uh, a program to put in place. He's just simply saying, Lord, repeat it. You can do it. Just repeat these things in our day. Lord, I'm begging you to put your fame on display for your people and for our community. He's asking God to revive God's people again. And there's a, a picture that we have of this. In the book of Ezekiel, there's a, an amazing text of scripture, and I just want to read it. No, no commenting around it. I'm not going to elaborate on it. I just want to read it. As we pray the prayer, Lord, we, we asked, Lord, we've heard of your fame. We, we ask that you would, you would renew your deeds and your fame in our day. In our time, make them known. I think this is a picture of what seems impossible to us, but it's totally possible for God. Listen to this. Then the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was a valley full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them, and I, I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, only you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and tell them dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh covered on them, appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves 
and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Dave Guzik says this, the prayer of Habakkuk shows us that revival is a work of God, not our achievement. There is something, though, that we can and must do for revival. Simply cry out to God and plead for his reviving work at the same time. This must be a personal prayer. Lord, revive me. We must pray a personal prayer. We pray for a personal revival and diligently search yourself. So I want to close by, by, by just, I feel like I'm, I, it almost feels like I'm doing this a disservice because I feel like this should be a whole nother message of how do we apply this. But I, I just want to give you just, just, a, just a next step, just something to ponder and think about. As we think about, Lord, we want to be for your fame. We want to be for the fame of Jesus. We want our community that we're becoming of a grace and peace, of grace and peace and, and a community for the good of our city to also be a community for the fame of Jesus. What, what, how do we do that? How do we preserve the fame of Jesus in our church? How do we see the deeds of God renewed in our day in our church? I want to give you two pictures to hold in your mind today before we leave. It's a picture of a sponge, and it's a picture of a mirror. A picture of a sponge and a picture of a mirror. You see, a sponge absorbs. You take a dry sponge, you've got a sponge that sits in a little holder. It's a cute little holder that sits in the corner of my sink, and it, and it sits there, and it, and it waits for me to take that dry sponge and put water on it so it can absorb that water and take some of that Dawn power wash that's just, I mean, it's like, what is in that stuff? It's voodoo, man, I don't know. And, and begin to scrub those pans down. It's just sitting there waiting, and it's dry, but it absorbs and here's what I want us to picture when we think about a sponge. You see, a sponge is dry. It's waiting. And the same sponge can absorb cool, clean water. Or I can take that same sponge and I could put bleach all over it. And it'll absorb that bleach. That same sponge can sit there and be dry, and I can take cool, clean water that I can use to, to, to scrub down a, a, a kitchen counter or a, or a pot in a pan. It, it can use that to clean. Or I can, I can pour something that can bring devastation on it, and that sponge will absorb it either way. The second picture I want you to have in your mind as you leave today is a mirror. A mirror just reflects what's been put in front of it. It's the age-old idea of a mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. 
The evil queen wanted to know who the fairest of them all was. She stood in front of it. A mirror just reflects what's in front of it. A mirror just reflects what it, what it sees. And so the same mirror can reflect something beautiful or it can reflect back things we would rather not see. And Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's what I want you to, to, to hold on to today as we think about the fame of Jesus and our lives and, and Lord asking, Lord, Lord, we've heard of your fame, renew these deeds in our day and our time, make them known. Lord, what, how do we, here's what I want to say to you, what we absorb, we reflect. You absorb in your life the things of God. Guess what? You will reflect the things of God back to the world around you. You absorb into your life God's word. You absorb into your life the people of God around you. You absorb in your life a commitment to be in corporate worship and to sing. I mean, I was standing over there singing Firm Foundation. I thought to myself, Lord, I hope I got a voice after this. I mean, we come together and we sing loud and passionate. You absorb that into your life. You're going to walk out through your life reflecting back the fame and the deeds of the Lord in your life. I can promise you this because I've been there before. You absorb into your life things that are unhealthy, things that dull you, things that lull you to sleep, things that, things that just distance your heart from the things of God. Guess what? You'll begin to reflect back to the world. A dull passion for God. A lack of commitment to his fame and to his deeds. One of the things, it is... It is so shocking to me to see people who claim Christ and what you see from them time and time again in conversations on social media, you see them reflecting cruelty back to the world. It's that idea, garbage in, garbage out, cruelty in, you, you absorb cruelty in your life. Because the only thing you can reflect back is cruelty back to the world. But I promise you this. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. You absorb the goodness of God into your life. You absorb the community of God in your life. You absorb time to spend in God's word and let him speak to you and encourage you and guide your steps. You will begin to reflect in your own life back out to the broken world around you, the fame and the deeds of our God in our day. And if our church does this together, oh my, the impact we can have. The other day, Friday, Randall and I, Randall Johnson, one of our elders, he and I went and spent half the day in Orange Mound meeting with a, a potential community partner. And I was so struck all day long as we were touring Orange Mound and hearing the history and seeing the, the sights and the, the work that's been being done there, the kingdom work that's being done there, I was so struck by this thought, meeting with this individual, I just thought to myself, man, this person represents the fame and the deeds of our God. Because he's communing with God. 
He's absorbing the things of God. He's absorbing the mercy and the compassion of God so he can reflect mercy and compassion and justice back out into his community. I was just so struck by it. And I pray that we could experience that in our own lives. We could experience that in our church. We could experience the fame and the deeds of our God as we, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, that we're a city on a hill. So let our light shine, our reflection of what we have embraced and what we're absorbing. Let our light shine before people so they would see our good works. And then what? Not come to our church. I'd love it if they would. I want to pack this place out. We got 113 seats in here from the floor down to right here. I'd love to, I'd love to fill this place up with people. But Jesus didn't say, so they would see your good deeds and show up at your church. What did he say? They would see your good deeds and glorify your father, or they would see your good deeds and give him the fame he deserves. And so when we say we are a community, we are becoming a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. That's our heart. That's my prayer for our church as we move forward into, into our future.